Well, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. We're going to um, pick up from verse 12. If you have one of the brown Bibles over by the door, you'll find this passage on page 1712, 1712. And we'll just read uh, verse 12 to 18 at the top of the page there. I just want you to recall that for quite a long stretch up to this point, Paul's been talking to the church about fostering humility in our hearts. And it's a humility that's based on the gospel message that we believe, the message that the Son of God left his place at the Father's right hand, took on human flesh, born to a very poor family in total obscurity, and... um, Then not only did he do that, but he humbled himself even further to the point of death, to the point of being crucified in shame, nakedness, and bleeding on a cross. And um, there's really nothing like it in history of one man giving himself so profoundly and so uh, selflessly for the sake of others. And Jesus was that man. And Paul says, listen, this ought to change everything about the way you as believers, as Christians, think about your lives, about your conduct towards one another, about your posture in the community. That we're meant to have the mind of Christ, which is that we are called to be, of all people on earth, the humblest. Because we recognize that nothing of our acceptance before God is because we are worthy. A Christian isn't a good person. A Christian is a person who recognizes that... that Their heart was wicked and they needed Jesus to save them. So this is, you've got to understand all of that before we just read this passage because it all sits in that context. Here we go, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Remember, he's writing a letter from a jail cell. He's not with the church anymore. He's writing to them, trying to encourage them, trying to stoke them up. And he says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. Remember, he's facing possible execution at this point. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now let me just ask you a question. What, when you consider what your life is about, where you're heading, what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve with your life, what would you consider to be a waste if you were to reach the end of your life um, without having achieved this thing? What would you consider to be a wasted life? A lot of us have these ideas of what we want to do, what, what life's about, what we want to achieve, the kind of bucket list, checklist of what you want to be and do and, and achieve. And... What you notice about Paul, just look here carefully in um, verse 16, right in the middle. He says, he's telling them to hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So for Paul, this guy who lived his whole life to pour his life out for Christians and for the building of the church, 
He would have considered his life wasted if the church of Jesus Christ didn't, the churches that he planted in particular were not something beautiful, something extraordinary, something that brings honor to Jesus. His whole life is poured out into the service of the church. It's my conviction that every person who calls himself a disciple of Jesus should, right at the top of their list of what they consider important in life, be the service of the church, the desire to see his church become all it's meant to be. And to give it a little bit more of a, some specificity to what he wanted the church to be, it's right there in the middle. This is where I want us to hang our thoughts. In verse 15, he says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. All through the Bible, from the beginning when God called Abraham and called the people to be his own, the intention was always that the church would be a kind of a beacon or light or lamp in a dark world. Now, when you speak about the church being a light or a lamp or something bright, it it carries with it these kinds of ideas of being distinct, of being pure, of being attractive. Distinct because he he says that we're blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul's saying, listen, when you look around, you look at all the darkness in the world, the church is meant to be distinct from it, something that is extraordinarily beautiful and different from the world around it. Meant to be pure as well. Purity's part of that. It comes over in these words like blamelessness and innocence. You know, brightness always speaks of purity, doesn't it? The villains in movies are always dark and the good guys are always bright. A bride on her wedding day wears white because it's, it's symbolic of purity. It's symbolic of having saved herself for her husband as she, as she marches down the aisle. And um, so a church that's distinct, a church that's pure, and a church then that becomes deeply attractive to the world around us. The church is meant to be like the lantern-headed beetle. What am I talking about? Well... These things lay their larvae in the mounds of termites. And as the termites reach that season in, the, in their life where all these little bugs fly off, winged termites fly off, the lantern-headed beetle larvae sticks its head out of the termite nest and glows brightly. And some of the termites are attracted without any idea that their impending doom lies in front of them. The larvae grabs them, pulls them into its den, stores up all these termites all night for, for the winter uh, for its food supply. Now, I'm not saying that the church is meant to eat people, um, but you get the picture. Light is an attractive thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's something which draws people. It draws your eyes. From the minute a baby is born, um, they begin to be drawn towards brightness, towards light. And this is what uh, the Old Testament says about the church. It says, arise, shine. It's a picture of the church being kind of like a city. It says, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen on you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The church was always meant to be something that is 
shining and distinctive and attractive. And I want you, you know, most of you who've read the book of Philippians before have read this passage and thought, this is talking about me as an individual. I'm meant to shine my light when I go into the world. I'm not saying that that's irrelevant, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about you going into the workplace and being an individual witness for Christ. He's saying, this is meant to be true of churches. When you think about churches that you know of, do you think of them as being attractive bodies of people? I don't mean physically attractive. It's not relevant here, guys. I mean that you are compelled to go and be there, be with those people, learn what makes them tick, and be among them. Now, friends, is this something that you can pour your life out for? The vision of a church such as ours in a city like this, bringing hope because she's a beacon, because she's something beautiful and distinct. So if that's something that you care about, then the question is, well, how do we do it? And uh, what is it that makes the church a compelling, dynamic, attractive, wonderful thing? in this dark world. And I want to help you to see the answers that come out from this passage. But really, friends, you've got to understand the surprising thing here. That all the kind of standard ways that you might think that would make a people attractive, the glitz and the glam that make things in the world attractive, none of that applies here. Because what Paul says is, it's as we go deeper into the life of humility that we as Christians begin to be more beautiful. All he's talking about here carries on from what he said earlier in the chapter. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then he says at the top of this page, therefore, if we follow a humble saviour, What does it mean for us to grow in humility so that we become attractive like our Savior is attractive? What is it that drew you to Jesus? Wasn't it that you met someone in Christ who was the kindest, most humble man you could ever imagine? Who loves you, even though he's so much greater than you. I want to show you what humility looks like when it's embodied in us. And I'll show you three things. It's humble reverence, humble contentment. And humble joy. Humble reverence then, right at the start. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See those words? Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, you probably read those, and you probably read them many times before, some of you, and you thought to yourself, oh, I know what that's about. He's talking about the fear of God. We know it's it's talked about all through the Bible, that that believers in God believe in a holy, transcendent God, and we are supposed to foster and develop and have in our hearts a holy fear of the living God. But actually, that's not what he's talking about here. Strangely enough, whenever Paul uses these two words, fear and trembling, he always uses them to talk about our attitude towards other people, other believers. Now, does that strike you as an odd thought? That you're meant to come to church with fear and trembling towards the people around you. 
What does that mean? What does it look like to have fear and trembling? And why is that important? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. I don't think it means like the fear of man, like we, we use that expression, like being afraid of people's opinions of you, or afraid of um, an embarrassed or shy of who you are before other people. I don't think it's about that. I don't think it's about fear that makes you unable to stand on conviction or assert yourself or have a confidence in the things that you believe and the things that you're about. And I don't think it's about um, just being socially awkward. When he says to conduct, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it doesn't mean that you're meant to come to church feeling socially awkward. Many of us do. He's not talking about that. That's not a helpful thing. So what on earth does he mean? I think what he's talking about here is that in our heart, when we understand what what the church is, when you understand what the people of God are, it begins to foster in your spirit a sense of reverence when you gather with your fellow believers. Do you remember... These words that C.S. Lewis penned in his amazing essay, The Weight of Glory. Listen carefully to this. He says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. All day long, he says, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of the destinations. He means to heaven or to hell. And he says it's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. I know over the previous weeks as we've been... Weighing up, what does it mean to grow in humility like Jesus? What does it mean to have a humble heart? What does it mean to take the lowest place? What does it mean to empty yourself for the sake of others? Right at the heart of it, he wants the church to be a place where when when believers gather, they're not posturing, they're not showing off, they're not thinking about themselves at all. There's a reverence and a respect, even an awe, about how we engage with one another. When you think about the world that we're in, do you see this kind of thing going on outside of the church? I think there is reverence in the world towards people, but usually it's based on gifts, privileges, or abilities. I mean, gifts in the sense of like people are generally honored because of their charisma, because of their dynamism, because of their personality. There's a massive cults of personality in this modern culture. People are propelled into public life because of their sense of humor or their ability to uh, manipulate a leather bag of air or these kinds of things, the gifts that people have. I'm talking about football or whatever, <laughs> for those of you who are too slow to catch up. Um, <laughs> Uh, gifts, privileges. We, we honor people. People have an, an, an innate um, ability to command honor based on privilege, based on racial privilege. So there's a lot of talk of white privilege these days, based on social privileges, based on wealth, based on accent, all these kinds of things. Or on abilities, people who have excelled in life. If you were to sit down on the tube and Richard Branson were to come and sit next to you, you would feel a certain measure of reverence and awe, wouldn't you? 
fear and trembling because the guy has so excelled himself in life that he's won our reverence. But you know what? When in the church, here's the crazy thing. None of those things are the reasons why we have respect, reverence towards one another. Do you remember how Paul put it earlier on in Philippians 2? He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves only because they're children of God. Before anyone's done anything worthy of any honor, he says, humility is understanding that the lowest person in the church is better than you. Can you imagine what a community looks like when people enter with that mindset, that heart, to love and respect one another? How profoundly countercultural that is and how, how attractive that is to the world. And what would that mean in practice? It might mean things like this, that we engage in, in deep listening to each other. Now, a lot of time when you're talk, having conversations with people, are you just itching, waiting for the next opportunity to say what's on your mind? Or do you really care what people have to say? Do you want to listen to what's going on in other people's lives? Do you want to help them open up? Do you want to help them to, be, um, to share? Deep listening. It's the ability to receive a rebuke from a, from a brother or sister in Christ. If you want to grow to be more like Jesus, I don't think it's possible unless you welcome others speaking into your life um, with honesty with directness, forthrightness, with criticism. If that's not happening in your life, then friends, you're a proud person, I would venture to guess. The church is meant to be a place where our hearts are so humbled before one another that we want to receive criticism, rebuke, the ways in which we're called to change and to grow. It would mean a refusal to gossip, You can't gossip about people when you respect them, when you reverence them. It would mean humor changes. I think this is particularly hard for those of us who are British because most of our humor is based on slagging each other off, isn't it? And cutting each other down. But in the church, we engage more in wanting to self-deprecate, wanting to cut ourselves down so that we can honor other people around us. It would mean service. It would mean very practical ways of serving others. Friends, Paul wants the church to be a place where there is this profound, humble reverence, where there is the other comes before me. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, humble contentment. He says um, in the next verse, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Grumbling and disputing, two things which come from a heart which is full of discontent. When you nurture and cherish thoughts in your heart of frustration or annoyance or anger or discontent. Now, when you think about the world that we're in, isn't it fueled by the exploitation of discontent? Think about the the massive explosion of tech companies in in the last 10 to 15 years. Facebook exists because it pokes at your discontent. It pokes at your deep, as one BBC article put it this week, your deep psychological need for acceptance. This aggravates our sense of discontent and frustration in life. Google, almost the entirety of their revenue comes from advertising. What's advertising? It's speaking to your sense of discontent in life. 
you need this. Apple exists because they know that discontent will drive the next product cycle. Why is it that we can't just stop now at the iPhone 7, seeing as it pretty much does everything you need a phone to do? Well, because they know that the 10th anniversary phone, the one that's coming out next year, is going to be even better, and you have to have it. Your other one's going to be useless, right? Whole of life is driven on exploiting discontent in our hearts. It's why we want bigger houses, better houses, beautiful, perfect spouse, and the perfect life. You remember that, um, that book, Ecclesiastes, which is Solomon's sort of musings on um, the futility of people's pursuits and how they work so hard for so little. And he says, I saw that all toil and all skill in work... Remember, he's saying, you look at a city like London, you see lots of toil and you see a lot of skill and work. People who are the best in their field live in a city like London. And how does he analyze that? He says, all of that comes from man's envy of his neighbor. All of that comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This is vanity and a striving after wind. He says, in other words, you wouldn't have the success of a city like the one that we live in If people didn't feel in their heart of hearts a deep, motivating discontentment and envy of other people. Do you recognize that in yourself? Is that something that chimes with you? Now, when Paul says here, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he uses a couple of really important words, but particularly the first one, grumbling, because it's this word, gonguzmos, which is it's kind of onomatopoeic, isn't it? Gonguzmos. Like it just speaks of this kind of um, disgruntledness and annoyance. And it comes up in the Old Testament a couple of times in some of the stories. If you've ever read your Old Testament, um, there's the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt. You know the, um, the account of Moses and the Exodus. And then they wander around in the desert for a little while before God's going to take them into Canaan. But while they're wandering in the desert, one of the things that begins to get into their community life, and it's not surprising if you've ever been camping, um, it's the worst thing you can do with your time, right? (laughs) These guys are camping for a long time, and they're camping in a dry desert, and they start dreaming. And they literally, it says they dream, they start hungering and longing after the onions and the leeks that they could eat in Egypt. In other words, food that actually tastes of something. And the first time that this word starts to crop up in the Old Testament is in Exodus 16 and 17, where it says they start, the people started to grumble because they're hungry, because they want some nice, fresh, clean water, and, you know, just normal, basic creature comforts. And the thing is that initially God's pleased to answer their desires. He wants them to be well fed. He wants them to have the things that they need. But at the same time, there's a way in which this, this kind of grumbling that starts to creep into their hearts is really indicative of a sick heart, of a broken spirit. Because it means a couple of things. It means that they stop trusting in God for their good. And it means that they start looking back to Egypt. Which is a whole picture of, you know, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It means you leave everything behind you to follow him, doesn't it? 
But if at some point you become discontent in your heart and your walk with Christ, you start to grumble. That's when you're in the most danger spiritually. Because it means, on the one hand, you've stopped trusting God that He is going to give you everything you need and everything that is all your good in life. On the other hand, you start longing like the Israelites back for Egypt. You forget that you were in slavery without God. And you start desiring, you know, they call it recall bias, where you remember things much rosier than they were. You think, my life without God was better. I think the reason why Paul puts his finger on this in the Philippian church, why he puts his finger on it for us, is because the church is many of a place where we foster a kind of a humble contentment with, with, with our lives. This discontentment is dangerous because it's deeply infectious. One of the other occasions where the word comes up in the Old Testament is when Moses sends the 12 spies to go and check out the land of Canaan. Do you remember how the story goes? Ten of them come back and they say, there's no way we can take this land. The people are giants. And it says the people began to grumble. It was like this spirit of dissatisfaction and discontent and not trusting God began to creep into their hearts and infect them so that they lost all of their joy. And the result was, God said to a whole generation, you're going to die in the wilderness. You're not going to go into the promised land. You're not going to go into Canaan. Only two of the men of that generation got to survive and go into the promised land. It was Joshua and Caleb. Now, friends, the church is meant to be a people who embody something different. In a world that's fueled by envy, in a world that's fueled by discontent, The church is meant to be a place where we say, don't eat the marshmallow. By now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the the marshmallow test. You all come across that? There was this thing done in in the 90s where they got these kids to sit down in a room and they put one marshmallow in front of them and say, you, um, you can eat that if you want, but if you don't eat it by the time we come back, you're going to get two marshmallows. And they said... I was reading a book by the psychologist who, um, who actually designed this experiment. He says there was a massive correlation between the kids who refused to eat the marshmallow because they held out for two. It's called de- delayed gratification. There was a massive correlation between those kids and success later in life, however that's defined. Whereas the kids who just, as soon as they went out the room, they just gobbled the marshmallow. He said those kids never learned to have mastery in life. We're slightly worried about one of our kids. (laughs) One of them seems to prefer the marshmallow. But you know, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, think about this in terms of the context of what we're talking about. Jesus says, leave everything, follow me, and you'll have rewards in heaven. Don't eat the marshmallow, in other words. So what's the greatest threat to you being a holy, radical disciple of Jesus in this life? Surely, surely, It's when discontent starts to grip your heart. And that comes from pride because it's basically saying to God, I deserve more. Look at what they have. Look at what they have. Look at what this world enjoys. I deserve more. And God says, don't you trust me? I wonder what it is that you're tempted to grumble about. He's obviously talking here about the context of church. 
It's easy to let grumbling set in about church if people feel our church could be better. Church can always be better. Maybe it's your work life. Maybe there's a kind of a frustration that's settled into your heart that you're always complaining and always discontented about your work or some other thing that's personal to your life. Maybe it's living in this city. A lot of us live here because we feel a calling to this city. There's a lot of sacrifices you pay to live in London, aren't there? Things like having a garden, which it seems most people in the world seem to have that, apart from us here in central London. Things like you know, having space, being able to make a bit of noise in your flat and that kind of stuff. And you know, These things, you can start to feel a discontent and a grumbling. You forget why God called you here in the first place. For Christ, he wants us to be a people who have this humble contentment, humble reverence towards each other, humble contentment before God. And here's the last thing, a humble joy. He closes off here. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. All the way through um, the book of Philippians, we've been trying to see how Paul is totally gripped by joy and happiness. And he wants the church in Philippi to be a place where they are profoundly happy in their walk with Jesus. And I think a lot of it has to do with us being, remember, lights in this world. You think about what is it that's different about the joy we have to the joy that you can see in evidence around us. I think probably, you know, we can all say that there's a lot of happiness in the world in, in certain contexts. A lot of misery as well, but a lot of happiness. What is it that makes Christian joy unique? And it's that you can have joy even in the face of suffering. You can have happiness even when life goes belly up. Isn't that what Paul's saying here? Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, he says, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. I don't lose my happiness. I want you to just think about the sacrifices that Paul made without losing his joy. It's not the first. He was ready to die for Christ. There was no resentment about the possibility that he might die in the immediate future. And in fact, of course, he eventually was executed. He put everything else behind him in pursuit of obedience to Jesus. Everything. Friends, home, the potential of being married. Everything he'd sacrificed for obedience to Jesus. Reminded of those words of Peter when he said to Jesus, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, There's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. Paul had done that. He'd chosen a life of singleness, a life of being on the the road constantly in obedience to Jesus. He'd sacrificed his time. He poured himself out endlessly in hour after hour for prayer for the churches that he was involved in. 
Remember how in so many of his letters he says, I pray for you without ceasing. Do you know how costly that is? In energy, in emotion, in time. To give yourself so, with so much devotion to prayer. He'd abandoned his reputation. You know, it may not be obvious to you, but Paul has been, is probably one of the smartest men who ever lived and has made a bigger impact on the world than just, he's, he comes in the top ten people who've ever lived. Partly because of his gifts and his abilities. So gifted was he as a young man that he was, he was called to be a disciple of one of the, the leading rabbis of his day, Rabbi Gamaliel. It'd be like being a, a, studying for a PhD under one of the top professors at Oxford or Cambridge. Paul was a phenomenally gifted man, but when he turned to Jesus Christ, he trashed everything of his former life and said, I don't want any of that because I want you, Jesus, and nothing but you. And here he is. He's in a prison cell. It's not really the life of a man of high learning and honor, is it? It's not the life of somebody who, in terms of worldly ter- earthly terms, he should have great dignity and respect from others. But here he is in a jail cell, rotting in in Rome. He renounced the love of money. He sacrificed money. In fact, often when he served churches, he did so without any expectation of being paid or receiving any kind of remuneration. He paid his own way by making tents, sewing together leather for these tents, This guy was constantly living a life sacrifice of pouring himself out. But he did it always with this sense of humility and joy. There were no short-term gains for him. You see a lot of sacrifice in the world around us, but usually people make sacrifices for short-term gains. They sacrifice meals out because they're saving a deposit to buy a house. Paul had none of that. You look at his life and you don't really envy it, do you? It's not like you think, oh, I wish I was out on the open road suffering beatings from people in every town I go to and then being thrown in jail and finally executed. There's no short-term gain to the life they lived. But at the same time, there was no sense of woe is me. Because he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't indulge in self-pity despite living this life of selfless sacrifice. Neither did the sacrifice lead into self-congratulation. As though I'm really special, I'm really something. And you think, how on earth do you understand the mind of a person who gives so much and seems to gain so little and neither falls into self-pity nor into praise of himself because he thinks he's better than others? How can you possibly understand the mind of such a person and the fact that in it all, he never loses his joy? Think about the things that you lose your joy over. Because you had to wait for a couple of trains in the morning because they were too full. Because your internet provider has gone down for like 10 minutes. Because the barista didn't make your coffee exactly right. It's happened to me yesterday. I was fuming. This is what sacrifice often means for us, doesn't it, in 21st century London. And we lose our joy. 
I don't think you can have joy like Paul does unless it's brought about by gospel humility. What do I mean? I mean, well, just look at how he expresses it. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. What was a drink offering? It was one of the Old Testament sacrifices where you would take wine and pour it out before the temple, before the altar, as a way of worshiping God. It's a bit like when the woman came with her perfume that was worth a year's salary. So we're talking, you know, anywhere between sort of 25 and 45,000 pounds in today's terms, and she breaks it and pours it out on Jesus' feet. That's the image of a drink offering. It's wastefulness in gratitude to the one that you're worshiping. So when Paul says, you know, the reason I can suffer is because my whole life is that wasteful gratitude. I don't really matter anymore. Jesus matters. And how does he get that heart? It's because he never loses sight of the one that he's living for. The Savior who poured himself out for Paul, for you, for me. I think the gospel is the only force in the universe that can produce this kind of humble joy like Paul embodies. Friends, for us to be the kind of church where our whole attitude is reformed by Jesus Christ... We need the power of God, because even as I'm speaking on these things, I realize how far short I fall of reverence towards you as brothers and sisters, of contentment and of joy through whatever life throws at you. Just remember how he started. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I don't think that we can have the kind of church which Jesus is going to be happy with unless we call out to God and say, God, will you work it in us? Will you form in us a community that makes you look glorious in this world? That shines because everything is about Jesus and nothing is about me, about us. Maybe you're not a Christian. I don't know if anything of what I've said resonates with you. You think, yeah, those are things that are missing in this world. We need more of that. That would be compelling if I could be part of a community like that. Listen, the door is open. Jesus wants to invite anyone to come and be part of this kind of church, this kind of community. But for most of us, we're Christians, and we look at this stuff and we think, goodness, we've got some repenting to do. The stuff that I've been indulging, sins, attitudes of the heart, which Jesus doesn't love and he's not happy about. And that don't bring him honor as the Savior who poured himself out for us. Can I invite you, friends, can we stand together and just respond in prayer to Jesus now? Perhaps you want to just open your hands like this and just come, as it were, in, in that posture of humility. And, our, and let's just start to pray through some of these things that God will do heart work in us and transformation work in us to make us more like his son. Father, we confess that 
Lord, as much as we love you, Jesus, and as much as we love the gospel, so often we fail to connect what it means to be gospel-centered people with practical reality, with a heart change, with attitude change. And Lord, we come before you and we confess, Lord, our failure in these areas and pray that by the power of your Spirit, as we work out our our salvation, you would work in us. I pray that, Lord, this church would be characterized by fear and trembling towards one another. An amazing atmosphere of honor and respect for other people, delighting in others. I pray, Lord, that our church will be characterized by a sweet sense of contentment. That, Lord, you'd help us to stop grumbling even before it begins. Because, Lord, we want everything about our lives to preach that God is good. We don't want to believe the lies that Satan sows in our hearts when envy compels us to becoming discontented. And Lord, we want to have hearts that are so joyful in Christ that all suffering is considered joy. That all sacrifice is a pleasure, an act of worship for you. That self-denial is a way of offering a drink offering of our lives to you, Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, we can't possibly build a church that looks like this. It has to be the work of God. But we want you to do it because Lord, we want to be a people who shine like lights in this world. We want Grace London to be a compelling witness to a city that is driven, driven, driven to despair and endless work. We want to be a beacon, Lord, of hope and of the gospel. So we ask you, Spirit of God, do your work, your mighty work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.